We'll finish Luke 17 this morning. How glorious in God's providence that we land on Palm Sunday as we finish up a series on the kingdom. And we've been clearing up misperceptions about the kingdom. And certainly those in the crowd that day had their own misperceptions about the kingdom. They had some things right and they had some things wrong. The religious leaders told Jesus to tell the crowd to be quiet, to tell his disciples to be quiet. Why? Because they were shouting messianic praises to Jesus. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were making references to the throne of David, that he was the son of David. They had good theology about the kingdom, about the king. The religious leaders had some good theology too. They were expecting Messiah. But Messiah was right in front of their noses and they missed it. And so you can have the right theology, but if your heart is in the wrong place, it only serves to harden your heart instead of open your heart. And let's not forget that the same crowd shouting Hosanna just a week later Many would shout, crucify him, because the king didn't deliver the kind of kingdom they wanted. Let that be instructive of our own hearts. Let us be on guard. There's many ways to look at our sin nature, and one way to look at it is through the lens of the kingdom. We don't want a king. We want to be king. That's part of our sin nature. When we say we do want a king, it's often so the king will set up our own personal kingdom the way we want it to be set up. And according to when we want it set up and how we want it set up. So yes, the crowd was excited for a king, but they wanted that king to alleviate all of their earthly, circumstantial, temporal problems. That's not to downplay their suffering and their oppression. But life here in this physical kingdom is temporary. Our sufferings are temporary. And as Paul says, they're nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that that awaits us. So let's make sure this week as we get ready for the celebration of our Lord's resurrection that we're not excited about our king because we have our own kingdom in mind. Let me read to you from Luke 17, set the table here. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the king of God is in your midst. And he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here, do not go away and do not run after them for just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. 
And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken, and the other will be left. There will be two women grinding at the same place, one will be taken, and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. This is the word of our Lord. So the disciples want to know when, and he doesn't answer their question. And then by the time he's done answering, they want to know where. And he gives this cryptic message about bodies and vultures. And we've been saying that the Bible teaches us plenty about the kingdom. In fact, the major theme of the Bible is the kingdom. And yet, a lot of the teaching about the kingdom, especially the future aspect of the kingdom, is somewhat cryptic. Jesus does this for two reasons, at least two reasons. One being to hide the truth from those who don't want to know the truth. It's a form of judgment. But for you and I, it intrigues us and makes us hunger for more. And we search more diligently. We want to know the truth about the kingdom and our king. And the Bible has plenty to say about the kingdom. But as we've been saying, since it is partially cryptic, doctrines about the kingdom, especially the physical, literal part of the kingdom, must be held lightly. Must be held lightly. Doctrines that we hold on to tightly, the gospel of grace, the divinity and humanity of Christ, The Trinity, that God is three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that Jesus is King, that He died and He literally rose from the grave. And that He will return for His people. We hang on to those doctrines tightly. We memorize them in creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. But you notice at the end of the creeds we affirm he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. 
Nothing about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, ah-mill, pre-mill, post-mill in the creeds. Not that these things are not important, but it is human nature to take secondary teachings and make them the primary. And it saddens my heart to see good and godly people who love the same king breaking fellowship over eschatology, which is a fancy word for the study of the last things. I saw a cartoon of an adult Sunday school teacher with a huge wall of charts and graphs and eschatology timelines, and someone's raising their hand, and he says, no questions, it messes with my eschatology. So let's be careful to major on the majors and, and minor on the minors, but the minor doctrines are important. So we looked at what is the kingdom, where is the kingdom, and we'll finish up this morning with when is the kingdom. Remember, we said the kingdom refers to three things. One, and overarchingly, God's sovereign reign over everything. The kingdom becomes euphemistic for God's sovereign reign over everything. But since the kingdom is both spiritual and physical, sometimes the kingdom refers to the spiritual part of the kingdom. Sometimes when we see kingdom in the Bible, it's referring to the physical part of the kingdom. And it's hard to tell at times. But it's important that we make those distinctions. Otherwise, we might take a teaching about the spiritual part of the kingdom and take it as physical. Or we might take a teaching about the physical part of the kingdom and turn it into spiritual. So we read our Bibles with humility and knowing that we've got to study hard. We need to study hard. Why does your view of the kingdom matter? We said that there's two major camps when it comes to the physical part of the kingdom. One camp, the amillennials, say there's, there is no literal thousand-year kingdom. That this is the kingdom now, both physical and spiritual. And so we're supposed to set up the kingdom. Institutions uh, infiltrate government, bring the kingdom to bear on this world. And when we focus too much on the physical kingdom now, we tend to downplay evangelism and discipleship. And next thing you know, for the sake of spreading the kingdom, you're calling people in the kingdom that aren't in the kingdom. They're close enough. They're moral people. They believe there is a Jesus. It's like, well, what do they believe about Jesus? Do they believe he's God? Well, not technically. Folks, they're not in the kingdom. Also historically, those who have taken the amillennial view tend to ignore Israel and say the church has replaced Israel in, in God's program. And historically... Horrible things have been perpetrated against the Jewish people by 
Christians. As wonderful as the reformer Martin Luther was and as important as a role God used him to play to bring us back to the scripture and back to a right understanding of salvation, he had some horrible, embarrassing writings about the Jewish people. That basically they had it coming because they rejected Jesus and killed him on a cross. Remember, nothing happened to Jesus that God the Father had not already ordained. In one sense, you can say God the Father put Jesus on the cross. Our sins nailed Jesus to the cross. The Roman soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross. Pilate nailed Jesus to the cross. But to pin it all on the Jewish people would be a mistake. So our view of the, the kingdom matters. If we put too much emphasis on the spiritual kingdom, which premillennialists tend to do, so premillennialists say Jesus is coming back before an actual 1,000-year literal kingdom here on earth. And therefore, what we see here in the physical realm doesn't matter that much. And premillennialists tend to downplay mercy ministry and stewardship. So both views have their slippery slope. And there's a sweet spot where you hold the two intention, but you can't be both awe-mill and pre-mill. That's no solution. It can't be awe-mill and pre-mill simultaneously. Either there's a literal thousand-year kingdom coming, or there isn't one. And so, we believe it matters that you come to a position and yet hold that position with humility. If it was so obviously one or the other, there wouldn't be two positions. There wouldn't be two positions. So we left off last week by saying we're going to look at the biblical evidence. So let's do that this morning. And the way we like to look at the Bible here, which is the way that has been handed down through the centuries is to use a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic, which just means read the Bible the way you would read any other book. Cover to cover, plain, normal language, where there's obvious metaphors, take it metaphorically, but don't try to spiritualize and allegorize the Bible. Don't look for some kind of hidden meaning. You wouldn't want anyone doing that to you if you wrote them a letter. Then we consider the whole chronology of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation before we take any one passage out and put it under a magnifying glass, consider the whole flow of redemptive history, and we call that biblical theology, which unfortunately makes all other theology sound non-biblical, But that is the term we've given 
to looking at the whole Bible. Then we look at individual passages in context. What chapter is it in? What book is it in? That's called systematic theology. And then finally, we look at how other Christians through the ages have interpreted Scripture. We call that historical theology. Notice we go in a certain order because if you started with historical theology, you might just say, well, this is the way they did it here in history, so it must be right. Historical theology is is a way for us to say, look, we're not the first Christians on the face of the earth. People have been studying these doctrines for 2,000 years. We ought to read what they've given to us, the heritage they've left behind. So a brief biblical theology then would go like this. You, you would go in more detail, but this is kind of how biblical theology goes. You start in Genesis, and you say, what does the Bible have to say about the kingdom? Well, in Genesis 1.1, it says a lot about the kingdom. That God is sovereign over the spiritual and physical domains of the kingdom. Why is he sovereign over the spiritual and physical realms of the kingdom? Because he created them. They wouldn't exist if he didn't create them. So he is sovereign over them. It's his kingdom. It runs the way he designed it to run. And then he made man in his image as both a spiritual and a physical being and said, have dominion over the kingdom. That obviously doesn't mean that God said, replace me as king. Represent me. Have dominion as a representative of God. Then we see a created spiritual being, a created spiritual being, a fallen angel disguised as an animal, tempting man to reject God's reign and usurp his authority. Now we see what the big problem is in the kingdom. Is the kingdom's subjects don't want to obey the king. When man sinned, he died spiritually first, physically later. That's informative. That there's a a spiritual aspect to death and a physical aspect to death. So, any plan to redeem God's kingdom will have to include the spiritual and the physical. In Genesis 3.15, we already see that God is putting a plan together to redeem the kingdom. He says that the seed of the woman, which is fascinating because seed is normally associated with the man's reproductive system. The seed of the woman will be bruised on the heel by Satan, but... He will crush Satan's head. That's what Easter's all about. Jesus' death on the cross was nothing more than a bruise on the heel. And he rose from the grave and will crush Satan's head.
God mediated the plan of redemption through various covenants with human representatives, right? Uh, Noah, the Noahic covenant. I will never again flood the entire earth. That was a covenant he made with Noah. Abraham, through your seed I will make a great nation. And through that nation I will bless all the other nations and I will give you a land and a people. And through Abraham, indeed, God made a great people called Israel and made another covenant with them at the base of Mount Sinai, which we either call the Mosaic Covenant or the Sinaitic Covenant. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then a covenant with King David. You will... Your throne will be an everlasting throne. And though the people of God, Israel, repeatedly failed, God is faithful to keep his promises. When we get to the New Testament, the final new covenant is mediated through the God-man, Jesus Christ. He's the perfect temple. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect priest. He's the perfect king. All of these things in the Old Testament were shadows pointing to the truth. And so then the question becomes, did the new covenant replace everything in the old? And the amillennialist would say, yes. The church has replaced Israel. And the premillennialist would say, no. God is doing a, a separate program through the church, but the church includes believing Jews. This wall of separation between Gentile and Jew has been torn down. But God will make good on all of those promises he made to Israel in the future in a literal kingdom. Paul says in Romans 11, God has not rejected his people, has he? And he says, May it never be. And goes on to say, I'm a Jew as well. And goes on to explain God's plan for Israel. Until that time, we call this, this time the church age. It began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came to take up residency inside the heart of the believer. That's a new thing. God didn't work that way in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. He will continue doing this until Christ returns for his bride. During this period, God permanently indwells his children. That's that's the spiritual kingdom. God setting up the kingdom spiritually in the hearts of believers. Then there will be a period of great tribulation before Christ sets up the millennial kingdom. At the end of the thousand year millennial kingdom, Satan is unbound for a time, defeated and thrown in the lake of fire. Now if you're like really into eschatology, you're like, he just skipped a whole bunch of stuff. A brief biblical theology of the consummation of the kingdom. All the saints then dwell in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and earth. 
So then we move on to uh, systematic theology and lots of verses about the kingdom. I'm just going to take this one in particular because this is where the rubber meets the road between amillennialism and premillennialism. Is this passage in Revelation 20 talking about a literal 1,000-year kingdom or is it figurative? If you keep reading... They'll use the term 1,000 years. John uses the term 1,000 years six times here. Normally, when we see figurative language, we don't get the same number over and over and over and over again. It really seems like God wants us to know that this is a 1,000-year kingdom. But if you're an amillennialist, you see this as figurative and therein lies the danger if you take that figuratively what else do you take figuratively that's the the slippery slope of taking a passage that appears literal and interpreting it figuratively And amillennialism historically leads to theological liberalism. And the only way you get to theological liberalism is to start interpreting parts of the Bible figuratively. I'm not saying that absolutely Revelation 20 is is not figurative. I'm just saying that once you start going down that path, this is where it leads historically. Why stop there? The virgin birth, that could never happen. Let's take that figuratively. The resurrection, come on, really? And on it goes. And that's how theological liberalism works. And next thing you know, God didn't come to save his people from their sins. He came to save them from all kinds of oppression. And so you get feminist liberation theology. You get racial liberation theology, transgender liberation theology, and on and on and on it goes. Just because this passage is in, is in the book of Revelation doesn't mean that it's necessarily figurative. Is there figurative language in Revelation? You bet. There's some, some weird stuff going on in there. But once you decide it's all figurative, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. Is there any other proof then that there is a physical kingdom coming? Yes, and one particular passage that I lean on is in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Right before Jesus is going to be taken back up into heaven, by the way, in a literal physical body he is in, they say, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Right? Is that, is that literal kingdom for Israel that was promised in the Old Testament, is that coming now? And that would be a perfect time for Jesus to say, you fools, you still think there's a literal kingdom coming. And instead Jesus says, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So just wait. Right now, the spiritual kingdom will spread through the preaching of the gospel. And he says what? From Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And that's what we're doing now. We're spreading the 
spiritual kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel, fulfilling the Great Commission. Historically, how has the church interpreted the millennial kingdom? Well, up until the time of St. Augustine in 400 A.D., most of the church was premillennial. That doesn't mean that's a slam-dunk case that that's the correct view. But you can trace the church fathers all the way back to John, like a disciple of John who wrote Revelation was premillennial. And then he taught his disciple and he taught his disciple. It wasn't really until you got to a church father named Origen who's famous for allegorizing the Bible that you start to see some people saying maybe it's not a thousand year literal kingdom. When Constantine declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, Christianity began to spread like wildfire, at least on the surface. Who knows what was going on in people's hearts? But it led Augustine, who was a very brilliant man, and we draw a lot of good theology from him, and not a bad name for a son. (laughs) But he was the major proponent of the amillennial position. He said the literal kingdom's now. See, look, it's spreading. It's going everywhere. Set up cities and the church and the state were very intertwined. And he expected that a thousand years later, Jesus would return. Now, the wonderful thing about making those kinds of predictions is you're not there when you turn out to be wrong. So what did amillennialists do when a thousand years later Jesus didn't return? Well, some say he did and nobody noticed and then he went back. But the whole lightning in the sky passage kind of tells me that that ain't going to happen. And we just had lightning Thursday, right? And wow, like I noticed Nobody said, did you, did you see that? I came outside and, and the youth group was playing in the parking lot next to tall metal light poles. And they're like, wow! And I'm like, go inside! <laughs> um, Augustine... Followers said that the thousand years then was figurative. Just a euphemism for a long period of time. Because there's that other passage in the Bible that says, with God, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Here's some problems with the amillennial view. Number one, the Bible describes the millennium as a place of peace and harmony and a lion laying down with the lamb and I'm just not seeing it today. It just does not look like this is the millennial kingdom. Secondly, the Bible also predicts a seven-year period called the, the Great Tribulation that's supposed to happen before the millennial kingdom. And so Augustine's followers also said, this is the Great Tribulation now. 
Well, what about the seven years? That's figurative as well. So why have a specific number for the tribulation and a specific number for the whole millennial kingdom and then say they're both figurative? What, what's, the, what's the purpose of having specific numbers revealed to us if they're to be taken figuratively? The Bible says Satan will be bound before the millennial kingdom starts. So if the millennial kingdom is now, then Satan is bound now. No. No. What does Peter say? That Satan is prowling around like a lion on a leash because he's bound. No, he doesn't. He says he's prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. So I wouldn't say that Jesus is bound. So, well, what do Amil say about that? They say, well, he's bound in one sense that death no longer reigns. That's a stretch. The Bible teaches there will be two resurrections, one for the just, one for the unjust. It teaches us in multiple places in the Bible. The amillennial view says there's only one resurrection. So you have to, again, take the second resurrection figuratively. The Bible teaches that God has not forgotten his chosen people, Israel. I don't know what you do with that verse if you're going to replace Israel with the church. As one of my professors told me when he was witnessing to a Jewish person, who knew his Old Testament well and knew most of the Christian theology well, he said, so let me get this straight. Israel, a literal nation, failed, forfeited the literal promises of God and must suffer the literal consequences. The church must be failing God figuratively because they get to enjoy the literal benefits that were promised to Israel. So wait a minute. (laughs) We're literally responsible for rejecting Messiah. And so we get all of the literal curses and none of the benefits. The church gets all the literal benefits but none of the curses. The curses are figurative for the church. And he said, and you wonder why not many of us have converted. So, six, the church then has not fulfilled all of God's kingdom promises. And Israel still exists. What do you do with that? If the church has replaced Israel, why is Israel still here against all odds? And why is the Sanhedrin reconvened? And why is there blueprints drawn up to rebuild the temple? And why have all the utensils that go in the temple already been constructed and are waiting? Now, none of that proves premillennialism, but that's one last thing that you have to deal with. If you're a millennial. Now you could certainly go on the web and, and, and type in problems with premillennialism. And you'll get a pretty good list there. And again, what does that tell us? 
hold on to your view with charity and humility. And so what do we do here at COBC? We have no official stance on amillennialism or premillennialism, but a straw poll of our elders and pastors, they all hold to a premillennial view. And some of you might ask, well, what about the tribulation? Are they pre-trib or mid-trib or post-trib? And some of you are like, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Study it, find out about it, but don't feel bad if you don't know what those things mean. It doesn't mean you're out of the club. Pre-trib is the, is the church raptured. What is that word? Well, look, look that up. Study the rapture. Does, in Thessalonians, Paul says that Jesus will come down, take up his bride into the sky within the, the, the church. Does that happen before the seven-year tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, or after the tribulation? Pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. And they all fall in different places. I love Rich Engel's position, one of our elders. He says, I'm mid-trib. But if it turns out it's pre-trib, I won't complain. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if, if, if we get to skip out on the whole tribulation, that no one's complaining. Hey, put me back down there. I want to see it all go down. No, you don't, you'd rather not be there. It's horrendous. So our, our doctrinal statement on the web or in your constitution and bylaws when it comes to eschatology affirms that we believe and teach that Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. But, like I said, you, you should come to a position on this. It does matter. And so a lot of the things that we do as a church will be shaped a little bit by our premillennialism. We support Israel. A lot of amillennial liberal churches not only don't support Israel, they hate Israel with a passion. They purposely will not invest their money in companies that invest in Israel, these kinds of things. And so it does matter what you believe. We believe that when God told Abraham that whoever blesses Israel will be blessed and whoever curses Israel will be cursed is still in effect. And so we, we bless Israel. When is the kingdom? There was a Baptist theologian named George Eldon Ladd who popularized the saying already but not yet. That's a great way of thinking about this. Some parts of the kingdom are already especially a lot of the spiritual aspects of the kingdom. And a lot is not yet. Well, pastor, make us a chart of all the alreadies and all the not yets. That's where it gets fuzzy. So study that in your Sunday school. Get some good books. Go to the theological library. Ask your pastors and elders for recommendations of books to read. And you can get lost in the already and not yet until Jesus returns. Ladd is definitely a premillennialist, but his view helps us not ignore some of the valid points made by our amillennialist brothers and sisters. So then I can quickly then just wrap up the rest of Luke 17 here. What, what, is, what is Jesus talking about at the end of Luke 17? He's saying, 
people are so focused on the physical aspect of the kingdom now that they won't be ready in their hearts when the king returns. Just like in the days of Noah, they were just going about their daily lives and and they didn't listen to the warnings. And the same with Sodom and Gomorrah. They didn't listen to the warnings. And so two women will be grinding at the grinding mill and one will be in the kingdom and one won't. Well, how do you know which one will and which won't? That's the point, is they look exactly the same on the outside. But one will be taken up because she's repented of her sin and she's crying out to God for mercy. And the object of that mercy is Jesus Christ, the King. And whoever seeks to keep his life here on this earth, that's the person that was on the roof, Jesus returned, oh, i got to go back downstairs and get my... My, uh, my trophies and my, my stuff. No. That's an indication that your heart is here with this world instead of with the kingdom. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. Well, where is this going to happen? They want to know, is it, you know. What part of Israel is this going to happen in? And he answered them and said, where the body is, there also the vultures will be gathered. Well, that's cryptic. All he's saying there is, when you see vultures circling, even though you can't see that far, what do you assume is on the ground? Someone who's either dead or is dying. Probably dying, otherwise the vultures would be down there picking at it. So if Jesus is talking about spiritual things here, where are there people dying spiritually? Everywhere. This is, this is worldwide. See, they're focused on the, the physical now, which is coming eventually, but, but, but not yet. He's moving their focus to the spiritual globally. You're going to preach this gospel to all the nations. And then, so we can finally answer the question, when is the second coming? And the answer is, I don't know. And you don't know. And that weird guy on the radio definitely doesn't know. He was wrong like three times about Harold Camping. Not even the sun knows which is just weird to me that the omniscient omniscient second person in the trinity doesn't know but part of the prerogatives of being god is in his humanity they the trinity decided the son wouldn't know in god's unsearchable wisdom he has chosen not to reveal the day and hour of christ's return that way will be ready All the time. Be ready all the time. Therefore, here's some questions for you as we wrap up this series. First and foremost, most importantly, am I in the kingdom? I apologize for the grammar error. Am I in am I am in am I in the kingdom? How do I get in the kingdom? Through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only way into the kingdom. 
Do I daily consider then, once I'm in the kingdom, the sacrifice that was made to earn my entrance into the kingdom? A sacrifice that was made when I was an enemy of the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? That when you didn't even want to be in the kingdom, because that meant somebody else was going to be king, Christ died for you and for me. Secondly, then, in my sanctification as I grow in Christ's likeness, how can I bring the kingdom into fruition in every sphere of influence God has given me? What does the kingdom look like in my marriage, in my parenting, in the workplace, here at church, in my community, in my neighborhood? Don't compartmentalize the kingdom. Do I just talk about the kingdom or do I actually live the kingdom. Where do I need to repent of trying to set up my own kingdom? Or where am I disappointed because Jesus isn't setting up the kingdom the way I want it set up? And finally, will I be found faithful if Christ returned today? I used to hope like he'd come back right in the middle of a sermon. Because then I'd be like, oh, But then I realized that if you're preaching the gospel every day, every minute with your life, you will be found faithful. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant, and we'll sit around the banquet table with him. Father, thank you so much for a kingdom and a king. Jesus, What a beautiful king you are. Thank you for giving your life for us. Save us and make us like you. Make us subjects fit for the kingdom of God. For your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.